Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from beginning to end, and we build it entirely from scratch. Season 2 is focused on the Fallout role-playing game, and if you don't already have your copy of the rules, first off, why not? Second, you can head over to your local game or bookshop or the Modiphius Entertainment website, which is M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so this week's show is going to be structurally different than what we've been doing since we started building. A major part of that is due to a massive case of writer's block I've been having for a couple of weeks, but it's also because I've been noticing as I've been writing that I'm having to refer back to my campaign binder a lot more than I had been previously, which tells me I've sort of lost track of all the individual players and locations in the game to this point. So this week, we're going to divide the show into three parts. We're going to take a few minutes at the start of the show to cover a few questions I've been given about some of the things I've been building this season, and I'll try to explain what the thought process is concerning them. Two, to help all of us that might not remember some of the things we've built over the last 20 episodes or so, we're going to recap the major players we've brought into this point, and I'm going to try to explain what their places in the overall campaign are, since I've also had some questions about those. I'll also detail most of the major locations we've covered so that we've got a record for ourselves to keep handy, if you're so inclined. Last up, we will be doing some building this week, but it's not going to be a new extension of the campaign. See, I'm still trying to figure out how to get my group to take the hook concerning Jackson Denman and he and his sister's overall involvement in all the really bad things going on in the city. And since I don't want to force it and make it cheesy, I want to make sure it feels right. That's where the writer's block has been coming into play. And while I think I'm close, the deadline to have the show ready means that we're going to build a couple of more jobs out for the group. And frankly, I think my group likes these jobs more than some of the campaign stuff anyway. So if that's any indication of what your group thinks, then this day is not a total loss for either one of us. Oh, and I will still do the recap of what we built last week, just so we have that consistency in our show format. First up are some of the questions that I've gotten about things we've been doing in the game so far. One of the questions I've been asked the most is why I'm using a job board in the game. A number of listeners have pointed out that the video game does not utilize a job board, so the thought of doing it here seems a little too much like a tie-in to fantasy games like D&D. I gotta admit, I can't argue with that reasoning. It does have a bit of that callback to D&D for me, because I use job boards in that game heavily. Plus, I used them in the Deadlands game we built out last season. Call them a crutch if you'd like to. I just find it easier sometimes to take these jobs I've created for the group and post them on a board because it's easier to get the group to take them if they can see what their options are, rather than try to have the folks who have the jobs try to find and or reach out to the group. Plus, I've noticed in the past that my group gets a little bit paranoid about people looking for them, so having some stranger out of nowhere coming to them looking for help with something can come off as a bit contrived or forced. So, I use a job board. Now, that being said, if you'd rather have an individual seek out the party to hire them personally, hey, do that. It does provide interesting roleplay opportunities, and if that's your style, run with it. As I've said, I've just had some issues with that in the past, and until I figure out how to avoid them on my end, I'm going to keep using job boards. 
I addressed the question about the radiation level chart we created two weeks ago last week, but for those who missed it, I do agree with those who've reached out to me that I should have had the group in a higher level of radiation than how I built it, so you can use three and four, or if you're feeling exceptionally froggy, five and six. Much like with everything else I do here, always feel free to adjust it to fit your group and your style of GMing. One more question before we move on to our campaign major NPC recap. A number of you have expressed having the same issue as me, and that's the fact that your group either didn't pick up on the connection between Jackson Denman and the various issues going on, or they just haven't seemed interested in following that particular line. I've been asked for suggestions, and as I noted, figuring it out for myself has been part of the reason for my writer's block. Here's the thing, though. I wanted this campaign to feel like a sandbox so that the group would feel like they've got a say-so in what they do and where they go. To this point, I feel like I've accomplished that goal. The problem is that I think I've accomplished that goal a bit too well, and that's what's kept the group from taking the bait, as it were. So to get them back on track, I think we're going to have to make it personal to them. Now, as of this recording, my group just reached the Corinth and Igbom being kidnapped part of the build. So even if yours reached it earlier, just remember, we've never really discussed who actually ordered that kidnapping. So we've got a few options here. I mean, maybe we use Victor to hire them to dig in and figure it out, which could lead them step by step towards the Denmans. One fear I have with that is it's going to feel too forced, especially since my group doesn't really seem all that fond of Corinth and Igmon. I mean, I think they feel for them, but insofar as really digging them, yeah, I don't see it. Uh, another option maybe to get these guys involved would be to use Amber. And remember, that's Victor's sister, so that would really get Victor involved. Again, though, I've got the fear that that's going to feel a little forced. So I think the idea is going to be some sort of combination of the two ideas I've already put out there, along with some sort of attempt on the group's lives. I mean, if somebody tries to kill or kidnap group members, now there's going to be a personal stake in figuring out what's up. Again, though, if it's not done just right, it could come off as forced or cheesy. After hearing my ideas, I think you get a pretty good idea of why I'm having some creativity issues this week. However, just talking about them here has been helpful, and I'm pretty sure I'll have it worked out by next week's show, but don't quote me on that. Okay, so with some of your questions answered, let's get into the major players and locations we've used to this point. And like I said, I'm going to give you a look inside my thinking for the characters so you've got an idea of why they're being used and what their roles moving forward might be. So we'll start with Victor and the third base saloon. I admit that when I first created Victor, I didn't see him as being much more than a wannabe gangster. My original plan was to have him hire the group for some less than legitimate jobs, then just kind of take a back seat to a bigger fish in the pond. As we continued to write things out, however, I realized that I was seeing Victor as something a bit different, a much bigger player in the game than he lets on. So instead of just being a wannabe gangster, he's acting like one. When in truth, he's got his fingers in a whole lot of pies, and he likes having a group of troubleshooters he can use to handle things he's not comfortable using the people who work for them directly to do. Now that being said, by this point, you could almost say the group does work for him directly, since they've done several jobs for him and have come to him for advice, most likely, on more than one occasion. 
Now, he might even see it that way, but he's doing everything he can to keep that relationship looking more like they don't, and he's doing that for both his protection and theirs. Now, as we move further into the campaign, I think we're going to start seeing more and more that Victor is a much more powerful player in the St. Louis Underworld game than we've shown to this point. The jobs he asks the group to take on are going to become more dangerous, and as we start bringing in more players in the Underworld, he's going to have to start fending off challenges, which will most likely bring the group into his direct employment, whether he wants to do that or not. Of course, it could also result in the group forming some sort of partnership with Victor instead, so that's always something we could choose to do instead. Obviously, that will all depend on how the campaign continues to flow as we create it. Corinth and Igmon aren't done playing their part in the campaign either. We've already found out that they were originally equal partners with Victor, but decided to strike out on their own. That being said, they still teamed up from time to time on deals, and their being kidnapped will have changed the nature of their relationship with Victor. Now, they've still got a lot of healing to do, so don't expect to see them back in action for a bit. But when they do come back, they're going to be on their own sort of mission, since they're going to want to get back at both Garson Tactical and the people responsible for having them taken which means that their interests and the group's interests are going to intertwine at some point. How that's going to play out is something we'll have to work out when we get to it, but just know that these two aren't done playing their parts in our campaign. Well, since I just mentioned Garson Tactical, let's get into them a little bit. We've established that they're not only one of the elite dealers in weapons and ammunition, but also the premier company for soldiers for hire in the area. And we've seen that there don't seem to be too many jobs they won't take. Now, obviously, we're nowhere near being done with them yet. Even with the bounty being taken off the group's head that Garson put out, there's still going to be some within the company that will want to bring the group down. One of the last things Victor has said to this point is that he intends to look into Garson, and I'm pretty sure we're going to find out early on when we pick the major storyline back up, is that Garson decided to double-cross Victor and go after the group anyway, which is probably going to be the catalyst for the group going after Garson. Now, that being said, we're also going to get deeper into the connections between the Denmans and Garson, and I think we're going to find out that they run a lot deeper than we've hinted at to this point though I haven't decided exactly how that's going to work just yet. Now, remember Paul, our retired chemist whose wife was kidnapped and experimented on? From the beginning, I planned on having him come back at some point during the campaign. Obviously, he's got a score to settle with Garson, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to work out the way you might think it's going to. I could actually see him acting in consort with another organization, though I know it's not going to be Garson Tactical or Jessup Chemicals. I haven't fleshed that idea out fully yet, but as we get into the flow of the campaign again, rest assured he's coming back, and with his knowledge of chemicals and explosives, it could be very interesting when he does. So, Jessup Chemicals, what's their part in all of this? Well, if your group was able to get all of that information we dumped a few weeks back, it should be fairly obvious that the Denmans either own Jessup entirely or own a large enough stake in it to use it as their own personal research lab. I'm leaning more towards them owning a stake in it, though, since we haven't started bringing in our overall bad guy for the campaign yet. And I say bad guy, but I haven't really settled on a gender identity for that individual just yet, so even that is open to interpretation. 
However, I think we'll start to make the connections a little bit clearer as we move forward. High intelligence. Well, the group's already had at least one interaction with them. And while that one went well, I don't think the next one's going to be as positive. When I created this group, I saw them as being very neutral in all of the underworld goings on, especially since they're mostly concerned with gathering as much information as they can on everyone and everything going on in the city. That being said, after using them one time, I think we're going to expand their role a bit, as I could also see them creating their own gangs of robots to protect the organization against attacks. Or maybe they decide they don't want to be neutral anymore and decide to make their play for the throne of the underworld. The advantage we have with this group to this point is that they haven't appeared very much, so we've got a lot more canvas to paint on with them. Now, I know we've dealt with Barnabas O'Reilly one way or the other. However, I don't think we've seen the end of his organization. And that's because I've decided something I didn't reveal to you. While the O'Reilly the group took out was indeed a human, the deal he made with iRobotics was for them to create a synth that's an exact replica of him. I'm not going to get into all the details right now, but suffice to say, he will be making his grand return at some point, and not only will it confuse the heck out of your group, but it will also instill them with a bit of paranoia. Now, that also means that iRobotics is going to come back into play, and that's even if the group wound up killing off all the synths on site during their initial visit. See, I always intended them to be a major player in the area, and that's not only in the illicit business, but in legit business as well. In fact, I think we're going to tie them to our overall bad guys in some shape, probably through a shell company or something. Plus, the group has no idea to this point just how many synths there are out there, so that gives us plenty of room to operate with as we move forward. So again, we'll be seeing these guys again down the line. All right, so let's discuss Melanie Zombrowski and the Limp Brewery. So if your group has already had interactions with her, it should be fairly obvious she's a player on both sides of the business fence. It should have been even more apparent that she's not somebody to be trifled with. That's more true than you realize if we're ranking the bosses we've used to this point. I mean, she's second only to Victor, and that's a really close second place. We didn't get into half of what she's capable of or what she has on hand. Needless to say, she's got a big role to play in the future. And if your group didn't need to deal with her, they're going to get what I would call the badass version of her when they meet her for the first time. So it's going to be a bit of a shock. Lent Brewery will always be in play since their beers are pretty much the only beers sold in the area. I need to take a moment to discuss the dome. I don't necessarily know what its role is going to be in the game moving forward at this point. It's my feeling that if there were some sort of decent gangster running the place, the Jessup jobs wouldn't have been quite as easy to pull off. Now, that being said, I could see it being a place where some low-level wannabe is hanging out, and that would provide us with a spoiler we could use against the group. And since it would be a hybrid group of humans and super mutants, things could get interesting. I'm also not sure what role Briar Neville has to play in our campaign. I intended him to be nothing more than a one-off character, but I've gotten a lot of positive response to him, and many of you have suggested he play more of a role in the campaign. So if we can find a logical way to make that work, hey, I'm all for it. But I'm not going to just shove him into a scenario just to give him some more game time. It's going to need to be something that's logical and a part of the flow. 
And insofar as the Yellow Jackets, Black Death, Messiahs, and Liberators, <laughs> you just know they're going to be seen and dealt with again. After all, I don't tend to name things specifically unless I've got plans to use them again. I know some of their use will come from jobs on the north side of town, but there are other possibilities. And since I'm not quite sure yet how those are going to work out, we're, we'll just leave it right there. So what about our friends Marvin's Carvins? I know I made a big deal out of them in the setup for this game, but we've really only seen them the one time. That's mostly because I haven't settled on whether or not they've got a specific territory they hang out in or whether they tend to wander in bands and do their thing as they move along. Regardless, they will be coming back and they're going to be a much more formidable opponent when they do. I can promise you that. Okay, so let's cover the most recent entries in our campaign log before we wrap up this part of the show and move on to the actual build. I do think we'll revisit the Saints Peter and Paul Church and Walter at some point. I don't think it's going to be more than once or twice, and it's certainly not going to be for the same reasons as the job they took. I can see the church being some sort of a sanctuary for them, or at least a hiding place if they get into something over their heads. If we do bring them back, it'll be more for the role-playing possibilities than anything else, so it won't be because Walter suddenly decided to become a major player in the campaign. And we could use Walter as the Mary Sue for something, since his murder could be a driving factor in getting the group to take actions against someone. But we'll just wait and see how things play out and what the needs of the campaign are. That takes us to Sylvia and the Twisted Top. We're actually going to use it for one of our jobs in today's build, so obviously they're not going anywhere. I think the club might also be a place for the group to meet another player in the Underworld game at some point. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it'll be to threaten the group. I'm still letting the ideas percolate a bit, so I'm not going to expand on them here. However, you can be sure Sylvia is going to have a job or two for them, so long as she didn't decide to not do business with them again. All right, last up is our most recent set of entries. Martin and the Lime Fairy will continue to play the same role they've already played. He's a pretty simple guy with a pretty simple gig. That being said, he could be the source of more jobs for the group, or he could also be a pawn somebody could use to get to the group. Fortunately for us, the possibilities here are fairly endless, so he's another one that we could be seeing a lot more of as we roll down the road. We've got the Lagerfelds and Mitchells in Arnold. I'm not sure yet what role they're going to play, but there will be one, I'm sure, especially with some of the other groups that are going to be introduced as we roll along. Now, obviously, they don't like our PCs, so any interactions with them moving forward are going to get violent. But like I said, I don't know what those are going to be just yet. I briefly mentioned the Children of Adam in that last job, and they will be playing a part in the future of the campaign. I know that at some point, there's going to be a kidnapping the group will need to look into, and I'm planning on the children having a part to play. However, the group's going to need more protections against radiation before we do that, so it's probably going to be a bit before we get to them. Alright, so I've brought you up to speed on what's been in the game to this point. Before we build, I wanted to give sort of a sneak preview about a couple of things that we'll be getting to in the second act of the campaign. 
First off, the group will be heading west. They haven't decided if they'll just be heading to the western part of St. Louis County or if they'll be crossing the river and heading into St. Charles County. And truth be told, I haven't decided what those areas are going to look like just yet. I do know that when they head out that way, we'll be bringing even more big players into the game world. So I'm thinking this might be where we start to peel back the layers of that onion that will be the ultimate antagonist of our campaign. The group will also be tasked with going to Forest Park at some point. I haven't figured out how or why just yet, but that will turn out to be a beast to create since we've got a lot of different irradiated animals to create for the adventure. We're also going to find out that things aren't exactly as they seem, and I don't want to give away too much here, but you can rest assured that the group will be surprised at how things go. And finally, I've been asked on more than one occasion if the Brotherhood of Steel will be making an appearance in all their glory. Yes, <laughs> yes, they will. I'm also planning to bring the Minutemen into the game as well, though we'll obviously be changing the name. Again, I'm looking for the right point in the story to bring them in, but it will be during the second act. So for fans of those groups, you'll be getting a bit of what you like. We'll also be bringing in more of the companies I detailed in the campaign setup. I haven't been using them so much to this point because I was more focused on getting the setting established and getting the group comfortable with it. But since we've managed to do that, I think it's time to start getting into those as well because they'll bring more opportunities for jobs and caps. And since the group is going to need better gear, we're really going to need them. All right, so we've spent a lot of time in this episode on things that aren't build-related. So let's recap last week's build so we can do a little building this week. Last week, we got our group out of Arnold after they finished their hunting expedition, but it wasn't easy. Both the Mitchells and the Lagerfelds attacked them, and while the group took some damage, they were able to get back to the ferry and back across the river. Making their way back to the north, they were ambushed by Garson Tactical, and they either managed to get away from them or they were captured. Either way, when they got back to Victor, they found out he'd paid caps to get Garson to remove the internal bounty on them, and he's a bit annoyed that Garson still attacked the group. He vowed to look into it and promised that if Garson had double-crossed him, he intends to make them pay. So as we start up the build, the groups finished their meeting with Victor, and they've most likely taken time for food, healing, and rest. But you know they're going to want to get out and do something, especially if their weapons and armor were taken by Garson. In that case, they'll probably do some shopping before they head out. So do that, then get to this. A messenger arrives as the group is completing their shopping. It's a Mr. Handy robot, and it reports that it's there from Sylvia. She has a job she needs done, and she would like this group specifically to take it. Now, if Sylvia isn't in play because they offended her previously, you can bring Kelvin from the End Zone Tavern into play, or if you've got someone of your own creation you've been using, they can be the one who requests the group. That being said, I'm writing this up for Sylvia, so if you use someone else, you're going to want to make a few adjustments, since I'm setting this up for a high-class establishment. You know, kind of like the difference between a classic Merlot and a boxed wine. No offense to those who like boxed wine, I'm just saying there's a difference. The robot doesn't have any details about the job. He's just there to request the group's appearance at the Twisted Top. He also notes that Sylvia is there at that time, and that's regardless of what time of day it is. So the group will head to the Central West End to meet with Sylvia. 
After everything we've put the group through to this point, I think it would be nice for once to not put anything in their way, especially since we haven't integrated concepts from the second act of the campaign yet. So, clear sailing all the way to their location. The Mr. Handy leads the group into the club and all the way to Sylvia's office. I'm not going to get into details of the club at this point, but we will at some point. So if you come up with something on your own, make sure you keep it somewhere safe because it will take the place of whatever I build out later on. Sylvia is sitting behind her desk going over a sheath of paperwork as the group arrives. She seems frazzled. Her hair's out of place. Her dress seems to be wrinkled and messy. Just looks like this hasn't been her day. She seems relieved that the group accepted her offer to speak. She thanks the robot, dismisses it, and then offers seats to the group. She's got a couch large enough for three, plus a couple of extra chairs. So unless the group is six or more, there are plenty of seats. And she gets straight to the point. Somebody broke into my house last night and stole some of my things. Most of them are things I don't really care about, because the majority of the jewelry I have in my home is fake. I wear the expensive things. However, they did take the pocket watch my father left me when he died, and I, I very much want that back. Now, obviously, the group's going to be a bit skeptical about this. After dealing with the folks they've been dealing with to this point, somebody losing their minds over something so small is going to raise a ton of red flags. They can make a charisma and speech roll, difficulty two, to see if their spidey senses go off. But what you and I both know is that she's absolutely telling the truth. The watch really is that important to her. If the group asks why they're the ones being asked to handle it, she'll give them this. Well, normally I'd ask someone out of the social circle here to handle it, but something about this break-in leads me to believe I can't trust any of them right now. Regardless of whether they ask her that last question or not, when it comes to details about the break-in, she's got this to say. It was much cleaner than I would have expected from a street urchin or the like. My locks were almost expertly picked. Nothing appeared to be out of place in my room, and nothing was left behind. No footprints, no fingerprints, nothing. The only reason I know I was robbed is that when I went to take off my jewelry and put it away, I noticed everything in my jewelry box was missing. This would be the point where she'd mention that she needs the group because at this point she's not sure she can trust any of her regulars with the job since something that professional might have come from one of them. She is desperate and offers 1,000 caps for the return of the watch. They can try to talk her up, so that's a barter check and again her number is 18. She'll get annoyed with them if they want to barter and will say things about them trying to take advantage of her, but she will agree to whatever number they get to. Also, if they barter, this will be the last job they get from her. She has no clues and no ideas about the break-in, so she suggests they start at her house. She's reluctant to give them inside access, but decides that so long as they take her assistant Bernard with them, they can have access. They might be thinking Bernard's a Mr. Handy or something. Nope, Bernard's a super mutant though unlike any they've seen before. He's very well dressed, wears a pair of John Lennon-style framed glasses, and moves with a nimbleness they've not seen from a super mutant before. Oh, and when he speaks, it's obvious he's very well read. He'll use big words, and he'll use them appropriately. He'll also be exceptionally polite until they do something they shouldn't and annoy him. Even then, he'll give them one very polite warning. All right, so here's the breakdown of how the investigation will go. 
There's nothing in the house, just like Sylvia said. You can have the group roll as much as you want. They're not finding anything. Also, Bernard is on them to make sure they're not looking at things that are irrelevant to the investigation or that they're taking anything. When they get outside, it's endurance plus survival checks difficulty four. They'll find a set of boot prints that don't match Sylvia's feet or Bernard's. They head from her front porch and around the back of the house towards the north. They can follow them for about five blocks and then they lose them. Have them make another roll, same difficulty to pick them up again. This time they head east, stopping at a Red Rocket gas station. Now, I should make it clear that once they've left the house, Bernard tells them he's staying there to stand guard, so he won't be with them. They can work the perimeter of the building to try to check things out if they'd like, but if they get closer than about 100 feet or so, they'll be fired upon. Now, here's what we're looking at. Three raiders, two raider veterans, and one raider boss. Stats are on pages 386, 390, and 387, respectively. Now, they'll realize once they've dealt with this that the boot prints they found don't match any of these guys, so they'll probably want to search the building. It won't take much, so don't make them roll. For those who've never played the Fallout video game, the layout of a red rocket is thus. The front of the building has a counter with the cash register, along with a couple of stools on the wall across from it with another counter for customers to sit at. There will be about 20 feet or so of open space behind the counter, and it'll have shelves and such on it. The office will be off to the side of the outer wall, and it would typically have the office safe in it. It doesn't in this case. There will also be the garage, which will have a power armor station in it, as well as armor and weapon crafting tables. Now, we're adding something the video game doesn't have, and that's a bathroom. It'll be at the back of the building and only accessible from the outside. And the group will smell before they open the door. It's the smell of death. When they open the door, they find a dismembered body in there. And by dismembered, I mean very much cut up. It's fresh, no doubt, and the boots that are still on the feet match the boot prints they followed to get here. Takes a bit of messy searching, but they find the pocket watch amongst the various body parts and fluids on the floor. They'll grab it up, return to the twisted top, where Sylvia's ecstatic to get it back. She doesn't care about it being dirty. She pays the group their caps, gives them her profound thanks, and heads out of her office, her mood greatly improved. So that's job one. Job two is going to be a job board item, and it reads, Need an escort for precious cargo. See Oscar in Diamond Pass. Now, if the group's regularly in Diamond Pass, they know Oscar. He runs a small bodega-style food stand, and they've probably eaten there a time or two. Heck, they might have seen him as recently as the previous day, so they most likely know him fairly well. I'm not going to do a description of Oscar. You just use whatever you think works best. But here's the job. He wants to expand his business offerings to a restaurant in Dogtown. He's already got a building there, and he's got a few employees getting things set up. However, his daughter is going to run the place, but he doesn't want her heading out there without an escort. The deal is simple. 500 caps to get her safely to the restaurant. As usual, they can negotiate, and since Oscar's only got a 15, they can probably get more. And unlike several of the folks they've been dealing with recently, he won't get offended. Now, I'm not going to build out the walk in detail, because we've covered this ground before. Just know that the restaurant location is one block west of where Garson Tactical was. We're setting up three encounters along the way, and they're all set up the same. 
three raiders, three raider veterans, and a raider psycho. Stats for the psycho are on page 388. The daughter, Bethany, won't fight, so the group will have to find a way to protect her. And once they get through that last fight, they're basically done. They get Bethany to the restaurant, she gives them a note to give Oscar, and they return to Diamond Pass. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And that's where we'll end our show for today. Next week, my hope is that we get Act 2 up and going, so fingers crossed. In the meanwhile, check out our other show, Role Playing History. This week, we celebrate the 100th episode with something special, and it's a surprise, so you'll have to check out the show to see what it is. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out all of the fine games produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online, it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we crank up Act 2 of our campaign. Do I know what's coming? Nope, but I can assure you it will be worth the wait. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.